0: hey there and welcome to the first of season three's bonus episodes i'm so excited to share some additional content with you all today i chat with sarah hayward author of giving up god and i hope you will excuse my poor microphone quality for the chat because i had some technical difficulties but i think you'll still find it just as inspiring as i did Well, good morning, Sarah. Thank you for joining me today. Yes, thank you so much for having me here. I am joined with Sarah Hayward, who is the author of Giving Up God. That's how I know you. Um, and I read your book and I have so many thoughts. Uh, but before we start, I wondered if you could just give us a little background about yourself. Because I I was thinking about this as I, as I was jumping on here. You know, I've read your book and in a way I feel like I know you now, but <laughs> in another way... I feel like, wow, there's a lot I don't know. I know about your spiritual side. So could you, yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about you and sure. um, and then we'll get into your book. So yeah, I um, grew
1: up in the Midwest. I am a, a Chicago suburbs resident and spent my whole childhood there. And uh, I, then I went to college in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I spent the bulk of my childhood in the Midwest. And uh, after college, I went to school for physical therapy So I was in Milwaukee for six years. I did my undergrad and the grad program there. And I absolutely loved Milwaukee. It's a really fun city. Um, But then afterwards, me and some of my friends at the time, physical therapists were really being hunted down for jobs. So we kind of knew we could go anywhere. So we took the opportunity and threw a dart at the map, basically, and ended up in Spokane, Washington. And so I moved out here with two friends of mine. And that was now uh, 14 years ago. So now I've lived in Spokane for a while. And I met my husband after I moved here. We've been married for coming up on 12 years. We have two kids. They are five and seven. So we're getting out of the toddler insanity, which has been really fun. Yeah. Getting a yeah. little more independence, you know, <laughs> a little bit more freedom there. Um, And yeah, I love the Pacific Northwest. I'm a real big outdoorsy girl. I love camping and hiking and all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of that to do within a five, six hour radius of Spokane. So I really love it here a lot.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I've read about some of that in your book, how you've been reconnecting to the outdoor, mm-hmm. which we will get into for sure. But but why don't we talk about your book and how it just came to exist um, and the premise to start with? We'll start with that.
1: Okay. Yeah. So Um, That whole childhood of mine was very religious. I grew up uh, to parents who had converted later in life into Christianity. And so when I was born, they were pretty into it. And they raised us going to church every single week. I was in Awana's youth group, kind of like all the trappings of a religious life as a kid. And I loved it. I had a really positive experience. My church uh, was evangelical free church. I've learned getting more into some of these worlds that it is not as fundamentalist and hardcore as some of the real conservative groups are. To me, looking backwards, it felt very conservative because they were very black and white thinkers. Uh, definitely the assumptions were that the LGBTQ groups were sinf- sinful and wrong and you know that kind of stuff. So, um, But I grew up really thinking that I was known personally by God and loved by God. And that gave me a very strong sense of value and worth and I think my faith really helped form me in ways that I'm very grateful for still today. Um, so yeah, all my closest friends were from youth group. And I I took my faith very, very seriously. And I've always been a writer, but more in a personal way. I had, you know, we were told you're supposed to do daily quiet times, So I did. I followed the rules and I got out my journal for quiet times and I would write and write and write. And looking back, I realized, oh, I think it was the writing that I always really enjoyed. It felt clarifying to to get words on paper. Um, And so I've always been a writer. And when I got married and had my kids, especially after having my first daughter, I could easily sense how quickly motherhood could take over my entire identity, that that could just absorb myself for a while. And so I started a public blog I had not, uh, I had kind of fallen away from the consistent journaling practice just because of real life and time and all that. And so I thought I'm going to start a blog that I will publish. So there's a little bit of accountability. Mm-hmm. If someone, if one other person's reading it, I'll feel somewhat obligated to put something out at least, you know, on a somewhat regular basis. So I started writing publicly that way. And a lot of it was about spirituality and God and life and parenting and politics and a lot of stuff. But I've always been very interested in spiritual topics. Um, and so I had been doing that for a few years and over a long period of time, especially now looking back, you know, the hindsight is so interesting. It looks like it's this very clear path to where I am now, but it certainly didn't feel like it at the time. Um, but my faith had been evolving over the years. Gradually, I had shed this dogma and let go of this belief and a lot of the black and white became much more gray. And I was comfortable with that process as it went. It never felt scary because it didn't feel like I was leaving Christianity behind or leaving God behind. It just felt like my faith was growing Mm -hmm. and getting more open and inclusive in a way that felt right to me and felt more loving and and accepting. Um, But I had started to get to the point where I was asking some really deep questions about the actual existence of God, which I had never really done before. And I think out of some kind of cognitive protection. My brain just wasn't letting me even go there. Uh, Cause I, I don't know if subconsciously, I was afraid of what I would find or what, but it was not until I was in my thirties that I really asked, could God not be real? <laughs> could this whole thing not be what I have been thinking it is my entire life? Um, and that was happening during the early pandemic days after the George Floyd murder. And so life felt very messy and chaotic I had been laid off, so I was in this weird limbo land, being not working, being a full-time stay-at-home mom by now to two little ones, which I did not ever plan or desire to be a full-time stay-at-home mom. So that was difficult. And I had all this time on my hands to sit and dwell. And I had tried to blog about some of these things and it was just too much. It was too big, especially as the answers to my questions were leading me to the conclusion, at least for the time being that, I don't think so. I don't think this thing I grew up knowing as God is real. I just don't see how that works. Maybe there's something out there, but if it is, it's so different and so foreign, I can't use the word God for it. God means something fairly specific. Um, And so I tried to blog about that and it was, I just could not encapsulate it into a nice tidy blog post. And so that's what started the idea of a book. I thought, gosh, I have to even get to explain how I got to where I am takes a lot of backstory. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote down an outline and then the book just sort of flowed out of me. It was one of those cool flow experiences. It felt like it wanted to be written. It just really poured out during nap time and after bedtime and any free minute I could find. And uh, wow. so that's how the book came. to be. Yeah. Absolutely. And then I was going to self-publish it because I'm an unknown author. This is my first published book. And the publishing world these days is all about popularity. You have to have hundred thousand followers for anyone to even look at you, which I don't have. Yeah. Um, and so I was going to self-publish, but then I got connected to a small indie publishing house out of Michigan and the owner, David Morris, uh, he is trying to do spiritual books to ask those really hard questions and mm-hmm. trying to get outside voices that wouldn't make it into the mainstream publishing world. So he took a chance on me and- published the book. So that was a real
0: gift. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed <laughs> <laughs> reading. I say enjoyed with a little asterisk and I'll tell you why <laughs> I've enjoyed reading yeah. your book. And I wanted to kind of just tell you that actually, because I'm sure, you know, as an author, I'm sure you love to hear also what people take away. And when I went to do your review, I, I really thought about it because I thought to myself on the one hand, giving up God is the title. I'm like, she is not Christians (laughs) are not going to read this book, like potentially, right. Unless they are very open. And, and, and then my review, I wanted to say, like, this is so important for Christians to read. I think Mm -hmm. if they're brave enough and able to, um, especially in deconstruction, because I felt like reading your book was, it was, I, I don't know. I've read so much material on deconstruction, but it truly felt like such an honest glimpse into someone's real experience in a way I actually haven't had before. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times people branded into a little bit more of a specific, um, you know, topic, perhaps, but you really just walk us through absolutely what it was like from square Mm -hmm. one to where you are today. And the thing is, I'll tell I'll be honest with you. This winter has been hard for me in my deconstruction. Um, Mm -hmm. I have, And not that I want to interview myself here, but I do feel like it's pertinent (laughs) to what we talk about here. I have long talked on my page about how I've been, I've really felt convicted that people, you know, need to be willing to abandon the faith if it seems less likely to be true, or if it was proven false or whatever, you know, we need to be brave. We need to, and, and we need to stop saying it's tied to our identity. And I just really came to a place this winter where I thought, where I really had peeled back the layers enough to say this is deeply, tied to my identity mm-hmm. and i am bothered by the fact that however i continue in my own deconstruction there is a part of me like i wonder if it's similar to what you were talking about with when your brain wouldn't even let you ask the questions mm-hmm. there's a part of me that's like if i look at an atheist life it's like i think at this exact point in time i would need so much therapy granted i'm in therapy <laughs> but i would need so like i can just tell it's the undoing is so deep, and so when I started reading your book, the first full half, it was so unsett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna lie, so unsettling, so unsettling mm-hmm. to be like, oh, and I know how it ends, I know how it ends. But the thing was, mm-hmm. I didn't know how it ended. And when I got to that mm-hmm. second half of your book, where you talk about coming into a completely new worldview outside of Christianity, even as someone for myself who is still I would say a Christ follower, I don't know intellectually what all I think about it all completely, but there, it was such a ray of hope for me mm-hmm. because I want to get to the place where if I remain in belief, it is not because I have to, to function mm-hmm. as a human, you know? And I looked at, you know, I was like, that is a person who is truly functioning and thriving outside of it. And that is mm-hmm. such a ray of light because for me, nihilism has been a huge I mean like it's still hard for me to imagine how we we don't be nihilist but you talk about that in your book and mm-hmm. i you found different ways of framing the world and framing life that is full of hope and joy so anyway I just want to thank you for being kind of a little unknown companion to me during my winter yeah <laughs> um, and challenging me so I do really appreciate it and I think that people listening you know Wherever you fall on the faith spectrum, if you just want to see someone and their journey, if you've already left Christianity, or if you're questioning even and saying, do other people have these questions? Yes, they do. And this is how one person handled it. And it can be really helpful for us to take a look.
1: Yeah, I just I do want to say real quick, because you mentioned the title being kind of off putting to Christians. (laughs) And (laughs) the original title of the book was grieving God.
0: Mm -hmm. Because when I
1: walked away, that was the overwhelming feeling was grief. I felt yeah. like something had died, you know, truly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was what I wanted to call it. And then my editor said, you know, it's too hopeful at the end. It's too positive. And it the book so doesn't encompass it. grief, grief should not be the main descriptor of the entire book because yeah, that's in there, but you end on too positive of a note to be titling the book grief. So she got me to change. Um, so and I know the title is kind of intense, but, My desire in writing this book was for people who had gone down this road, this Mm -hmm. terrifying, scary road of having been a deep, devout believer and had walked either all the way away or close to it. So I wanted to reach those people who were in no man's land and feeling lost and alone and afraid I'm not trying to convince anyone who's on the fence Mm -hmm. or to convert any Christians outside. Like I have no desire to change what anybody's thinking. So my hope in that title was that, yeah, the people who are scared of that won't pick it up because it's not for them. I don't want to try to attack anybody's beliefs or change Mm -hmm. anybody's mind. Truly. That's been a gift of giving up that evangelical side of my brain is I don't have to convert anybody. has been a huge blessing. And so Yeah, the book is meant for people who have kind of been on this path to be a source of comfort, um, but not to try to capture anybody who's not sure what to think and sway them to my dark side.
0: Your dark side, (laughs) yes. And I think it really is that source, which is so interesting. I think it really is that source of comfort. And I do think, yeah, I do think that there are a lot of people who at least message me personally who are in what you call that no man's land. You know, they Mm -hmm. know what they don't think anymore, Mm -hmm. but now there's this emptiness and there mm-hmm. is a, a big question mark on how to move forward. And I just love how you detail what that path can look like. It's mm-hmm. so hopeful. It's It really is. I'm glad I'm glad the title is what it is instead of grieving God, even though perhaps grieving God would have been more gentle for Christians, perhaps. Yeah. But I think you're <laughs> right for the people who have sat there in that empty land. It's perfect. <laughs> it tells them what it's, what it's about. And it also tells them that there is room beyond the sadness. So, let's talk about how you define yourself now spiritually mm-hmm. and 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 then take a look at what life is like for you now. Okay? Yeah, so yeah, the second half of the
1: book is me wrestling with my identity because being a Christian was foundational. You know, it is who I was. Like you're saying, it's so wrapped up in our identities. And it was taught to be, it's supposed to be, we were supposed to be dead to Christ and to be living for this other being, this other, you know, will, not our will alone. So that was the scariest part was who am I if I'm not a Christian? And so that's where I felt a lot of the fear of just like, I felt like I ripped the entire rug out from my life. Honestly, you know, everything I have done has been about my faith the clothes I wear, the words I use, the movies I watch. like It influenced every single niche of my life. And so that was intimidating to walk away from that. It became freeing as I explored it, but at first it was very scary. And so I wrestled in the book with different labels. I went to therapy for all this and my therapist had suggested, because I was not Eager to grab a new label. I wasn't gonna start waving the atheist flag and be all, you know, gung-ho yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. But she said, no, you should have at least an answer because everyone's gonna ask you, well, if you're not a Christian, what are you? And so it'd be nice to have a little pre-packaged answer so I don't have to give the whole big spiel every time. And, yeah. and so um I wrestled with a couple different ideas. I, I considered the Christian atheist because I still have that cultural aspect of Christianity but not the belief in God, which I kind of compare it to being like a secular Jewish person. Mm -hmm. Um, I talked about being a poetic naturalist, which is a philosophy that I'm really drawn to. And I, that is probably where I land uh, Mm -hmm. the most, but it's just a weird term that nobody's heard of. So I'm not going to, I don't use that one on a regular basis, Um, but I like that concept a lot. And then um, what I do have called myself now, if somebody asks, I say that I'm an agnostic atheist. Okay. Agnostic is more of a descriptor if you are certain or you're somebody who doesn't think that there's a known answer. So Mm -hmm. I am not convinced to the non-existence or the existence of God. And I'm saying, I don't know. And I'm backing out of that argument because I don't know that we'll ever know. So I'm, I'm open to there being something out there, but I don't claim to have any clue what it is. And the atheist part comes in because I don't see that it's likely that there is some sort of divine being out there. So leaning towards no, but I'm open. And so that's kind of where I've landed is the agnostic atheist label.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and yeah, as far as what my life looks like now that it's, it's been interesting. It's been, I think because I was in progressive circles for a long time in the last decade, mm-hmm. um, it hasn't been a huge splash. Most of my friends have had a lot of doubts, and have redefined a lot of parts of their faith the church i go to is very progressive we have female pastors we're open and affirming they've had scientists do the sermons and talk about science in a positive way we are not afraid of evolution things like that so i'm surrounded by types of christians who are not completely intimidated by somebody with some heavy questions um But at the same time, my husband is a Christian and we both got married under the idea that being equally yoked was the number one thing to look for in a spouse Mm -hmm, (laughs) and would have never married somebody who wasn't a Christian, you know? So now he's married to someone who I can't really call myself a Christian. If I don't believe in God, I feel like (laughs) as much as I might culturally still cling to a lot of the Christianity, but, um, So that's been hard. It's been a totally new territory for us. And we're still figuring that out. It's been up and down. We kind of set it aside for a while. And then we come back to it and have some really hard conversations and set it aside. And so that's been tricky. And we have little kids. And so we haven't really gotten into it a ton, ton with them yet. My oldest is seven. So she's getting pretty sharp to start asking some tougher questions and notice things. Um, But for now, I still go to church, uh, partly for that sake of my marriage, you know, I'm I want to meet my husband halfway. And our church, thankfully, is not triggering for me. I can go there and feel fairly safe and um even still truly get something out of some of the sermons varies week to week. But yeah. um they're still teaching us to be the type of person I still want to be, basically. So I just have to reframe maybe the motivation behind some of their points. But so we still yeah. all go to church. And for now on the outside, things look very similar um, yeah. to what I was like before, but internally it's a whole new territory.
0: <laughs> uh, that is so fast. Honestly, it's so fascinating. And I was so, I don't know, it's kind of a breath of fresh air to read for me about you still going to church because that is not something I see very many people in deconstruction and especially very many people that are agnostic atheists willing mm-hmm. to do it apart because they are so triggered um and i think that there's a part of uh sometimes it feels like it's the wrong thing to do so i'm mm-hmm. i'm really wondering if perhaps there is that wrongness that feeling of i have to stand to my conviction in this way if that's almost kind of an evangelical christian mm-hmm. overhang perhaps yeah. and it's really interesting to see you be able to hold it with a little bit of a lighter hand. Mm -hmm. and, and still be able to glean truth and goodness and, and, and life lessons from, from that place. So I actually find that really interesting and inspiring. Um, and I was going to ask a little bit then when you said, you know, it still lines up a lot with how you want to live. One of the things I heard growing up, I don't know if you did, but, um, I've heard people say, I'm not so concerned into looking into if Christianity is real or not, if God's real or not, because I would live my life the same way. And Mm -hmm. I believe that a long time. Mm -hmm. For me, the way I was taught about God, I don't actually think that is true in every case, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that statement, maybe pertaining to your own story, especially because you say your life is pretty close to the same, and yet you still thought it was important to dig in at a level that a lot of people are too afraid to do, or, or it's just not on the radar. Um, so, what's my mm. question on in all this? I guess <laughs> thoughts to that to that particular statement of, I'm not going to look too deep because I would live life the same way. What would you say to someone who would say that?
1: I do think ultimately the way we live and our actions is what matters more than anything we think. Mm. I mean. If you think back, even for two minutes about church history, you know, the Christian church has been around for 2000 years. There have been so many versions of Christianity over the centuries, so many different flavors of belief, different dogmas, different ideas. Then you step out to other religions. You step way back into the history of humanity. The, I don't know, the arrogance to think that anybody has it right at any moment in time is so kind of ridiculous seeming to me. So there have been so many ways of just being a Christian, just keeping it inside Christianity. Even today, you look around the world and the different churches around the world are so different. Yeah. So obviously we all have very different beliefs. I think what really matters is, you know, what we're doing with our lives and how we're living. And are you, are you being kind? Are you being the hands and feet of God? Are you showing love? Um, so I think actions do speak louder than words um, in that sense. And so, yeah the and again there's because there's all these different flavors of Christianity there are several types of ways of being a Christian that I would definitely not stick with anymore Christians that are being more judgmental or you know there's a lot of versions of Christianity I absolutely wouldn't support my church is is an example of a a type of church and a type of Christianity that I can get behind for the most part um their emphasis on love and serving and Open doors and humility, you know, staying humble. And so, um, yeah, to somebody who's on the fence where they think about God, I think that's a fine place to be. And yeah, just focus on your life and your actions and what are you doing, Mm -hmm. even in some of the verses of the Bible. That was a parable that always used to give me nightmares was when the sheep and the goats, you know, when someone Mm -hmm. gets up to, to heaven, or it's in the parable of Jesus where he says, you know they think they're in these sheep come up and they think that they were good and they did all the right things. And she said, "Uh, uh, you didn't serve the poor. You didn't feed the hungry. Didn't clothe the naked. I don't know. You get away. Yeah. That was always terrifying to me because it didn't make it seem like it was a works over faith kind of situation. But um, those were supposedly words from Jesus mouth saying, you know, what you do with your life is more important than going to church and what you're saying with your mouth. So I think that's a, a, great way to live. And if you need to leave the intellectual cognitive piece of it in the background, I, I think that's okay. Personally. Yeah.
0: Very interesting. And so as we're still on this train of thought, I have so many other questions too, but one of the things I have been talking about with, um, uh, atheists in particular, and I'm, I'm, you're probably familiar with this, um, is more moral standards. This is kind of a bigger question, but just any thought you have would be fine on it. So one of the things that I think is so appealing sometimes to atheists about religion or about Christianity is because even if we disagree on moral objectiv- on um, <laughs> moral objectivity, so the idea that there is a moral standard of good and evil, right and wrong, mm-hmm. even if we disagree on what it is, We have a claim, as, or by we, I mean religious people, especially Christians, have this claim of there is this objective moral standard because God exists, you know, we are seeking to find what is absolutely right, what is wrong, things are good and evil, and I've been peeling back the layers with a particular friend of mine who's an atheist, and it's frustrating (laughs) for him in particular to say, what is the moral standard? If there is no God, how do we decide what is good and bad, and and Mm -hmm. you know, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that and how that's looked for you, Mm -hmm. especially as someone who started, um, with the God idea of moral standard and then, Mm -hmm. and then coming out. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? That's a super off the cuff question. Yeah, no. (laughs) yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I did think about this a lot. That was a question I definitely wrestled with. I think in my book, I have a chapter called meaning where I kind of ask, both morality and meaning, you know, what is the purpose of life and of anything, if there's not some God that we're aiming to please and, you know, be reunited with in the afterlife. Um, And I think to say that religion has a tight grip on the moral standard, you could very quickly rip that apart. It's almost laughable looking at the behavior of religion and of churches how many sex scandals are there how many corrupt you know mega church pastors with private jets you could easily say maybe on paper they think they have a moral standard but their life is you know the same as any other person's life religious or not so the idea that religion has a stranglehold on morality I think is honestly kind of a joke and maybe something that religions use to try to um to show their value in society. But when you look around, I have friends who are atheists who have never been in jail and have never, you know, been evil people running around committing crimes. So I don't think that religion is a requisite at all for moral behavior or mor- mor- moral thinking. Um, And I think if you, I really am into, I'm a huge nerd. So I'm really into paleoanthropology and like early human evolution. And when you look back in time a little bit, there was a book by, Um, Yuval Harari called Sapiens I don't know if you've read that book it's a really cool sort of big picture look on human evolution and he goes into the development of religion and when you see it from this very up in the sky big picture kind of anthropological view you can just see it as a process of evolution that humans got into groups, we got into cultures, and in order for that to work, to live with a large group of people, there had to be some code, some sense of rules, mm. to keep everybody from, you know, stealing and killing each other. And so, morality seems like a very clear development that's happened as we've evolved and grown into bigger and more complex societies. Um, and so, I can, to me, it seems a very clear and obvious path toward morality purely secular, purely just through human development and and the progression of societies. And so I think morality is something that we have come up with, so to speak, kind of invented as a human cultural piece to help the survival of our species and to just keep life on this planet livable for ourselves, that without it, you know, pure anarchy all the time, we'd still be warring tribes, just murdering each other for looking at somebody the wrong way and (laughs) nobody would, you know. Be able to thrive. So I think morality uh, can exist without the presence of a divine being telling us what to do, but just because, as a species, we need to survive. yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and those moral rules help us that way,
0: okay. Well, let's go down a little will grab a trailer for a second <laughs> because I just talked to my friend about <laughs> this, and I'm super interested in your yeah. thoughts., uh, so one of the things that was is tricky, of course, is the idea that if it is a uh, an evolutionary development, and it's for the survival of our species. Then it's not objective, right? Um, right. And many of these you things, things we look back at and history, you know, yeah. and and we we peel back the layers to the sense of like, is is morality based on um, kind of group opinion, mass opinion at the time? And so mm-hmm. if it is, has it changed over time? Was slavery actually once fine? And now we think it's not fine. Do you have any thoughts on that? This is like not even close to what we plan to talk
1: about. (laughs) I love this. That's totally fine.
0: Um, I do think morality is fluid
1: and I think that's a little uncomfortable. I think as humans, we are so attracted to black and white. We so badly want to know what the right answer is so that we can avoid being wrong. And I think that nothing in life is ever black and white. I don't think black and white exists. Um, just even on the color spectrum, there's gray, (laughs) like clearly there's (laughs) in-betweens and there's many different shades. So I think morality has changed over time, clearly. And I, you can see that looking back slavery, I would hope that people always felt somewhere deep inside that this is wrong. And yet it was morally acceptable, right or wrong. They were doing it clearly worldwide. It was a phenomenon. Um, it's interesting. I just read something about Uh, American slavery was uniquely cruel, that a lot of slavery, like in the Roman Empire and earlier days, slaves were actually treated like real humans, and not this subhuman species that we kind of patented in American slavery. But yeah, yeah, so I think morality has definitely changed over time, it used to be totally moral acceptable for an older man to marry an eight year old girl, you know, it was morally acceptable to have many wives, so many things at once time were were happening. And were the, you know, we're not offensive to the moral code of the day. I'm sure again, for the people living that life and for the little girl getting basically sent off to, you know, make babies for some creepy old man that never felt good. But um, societally, I think it was an acceptable standard. And I think you can take that, you can use other things to demonstrate that evolution and change throughout time. If you look at for example, like standards of beauty, there's all those cool videos that show like this was the perfect woman back in the, you know, 1880s. And it's this plump, curvy, pale, sort of Victorian, you know, and you go through time, and then it becomes the twiggy, thin supermodel. And now it's the Kardashians. Our idea of what a beautiful woman looks like has changed greatly over time. So I think a lot of our values as human society change and evolve with culture. And I think morality is one of them. And I think if you're honest, and look back in time, you can see that it it did used to be different and our standards have changed now. And I'm that's one thing that gives me hope because I think as messed up as the world looks today, and there's certainly buku issues to be upset about, we are fighting for a higher standard of morality now than ever before, as we're fighting for the rights of you know, transgender people and the LGBTQ we're fighting for racial reconciliation. It's not here. It's still a, you know, definitely clause out fight for it. But I think the standard is getting pushed further and further into a more equitable, truly moral state that we've never even had on this planet, and we're fighting for that. So, yeah, I think morality changes over time for sure,
0: very interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for mm-hmm. calling me on my <laughs> a little mm-hmm. brain trail there but um I also really want to talk about was it poetic naturalism Mm -hmm. I really loved reading about that and Mm -hmm. the thought of that and how in a way that counters maybe the nihilistic tendency I myself have at times when Mm -hmm. I think of of life as an atheist perhaps so could you just give us yeah let's get into that a little bit like give us a little bit of a background on what that actually is and then on why that appeals to you and why you maybe even would define yourself that way, even though you said no one knows what that is. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So that's a term I got from Sean Carroll. He is a super smart physicist. I forget what university he's at. Um, But I read a book of his called The Big Picture. And he is a secular person. I don't know if he was ever religious, but the book is talking about, um, it's very heady and sciencey and a lot of philosophy. I had to sit it down many times. It's one of those books you read the same paragraph multiple times to feel like you actually get what he's trying to say. Yeah. Um, but in it, he kind of went through another sort of the big picture of, of evolution starting before the earth was even a planet all the way up to now. Um, and so throughout that, he talks about humans entering the scene and society and morality and all that kind of thing and so he talks a little bit about how we evolved eventually to ask the big questions of why are we here what are we doing here and in so created an answer for ourselves which was god and religions and you know you look back in time and humans had an idea of the divine when we were still in caves you know there's some cave art that shows these sort of divine creatures that weren't human weren't animal um And so it's a question we've wrestled with since our brains could ask the question. And uh when he lands on the for him, there is no divine being in charge of the planet we got here just through the process of evolution and science, and that without having something in charge, without this divine being who made this all with a purpose and a plan without maybe an afterlife, I don't believe he believes in any kind of afterlife, he thinks we're just lights out, done, mm-hmm. that it can definitely lead someone to say, well, then what's the point? Our mm-hmm. life means nothing. If no one's watching, if no one's keeping score, we're just here and then we're gone and in a couple of generations, no one will ever remember us. How pointless. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, maybe, yeah, in a cosmic, eternal sense, yeah, there's not a big point 500 years from now, no one's going to know who I am, you know, but in the here and now in my actual life, I matter. Mm. Things matter. What I do matters. I'm a mother. I'm a friend. I'm a daughter. Those interactions, those relationships I have, those matter and they have meaning to the people in my life, in my sphere of influence. And so it's kind of a both and yes, maybe in the grand scheme of things, it's all pointless quote unquote I say because for us as individuals in our particular instance we are here Mm. inexplicably life is so bizarre that you're here that you were the one egg out of your mom's body that was like it's all so (laughs) bananas that we're here at all but you are so we we have this gift of consciousness and of life and within that experience things matter Mm. and so I liked that being able to take it I don't know, to see that sort of dual perspective of like big picture, okay, yeah, maybe no eternal purpose, but in my life, there is a purpose, and I have an effect on my circle, I have an effect on the planet, the things I do are going to matter, and there are those ripple, domino, butterfly effects um, that do matter and will make an impact, but yeah, maybe in another million years, no one will ever know, but uh, in the more specific context of my life, uh, things matter greatly.
0: Yeah, yeah, and could you tell our listeners did you ever wrestle with that idea before getting to that point the idea of nothing matters and what now or was that was that I wondered if maybe not because you know with with your children and with um mm-hmm. things in motion I wondered if that mm-hmm. wasn't so much a place you got stuck because I think for some people especially for me as a child I had gotten before having kids or anything I was kind of mulling over this stuff and I was like if there's no god mm-hmm. I will not have kids. <laughs> I will not bring people <laughs> into this world of suffering. I mean, I thought at the right. time, you know, very nihilistic. So, yeah, was that
1: mm-hmm.
0: was that a point in your grief when you talk about grief? Was that a stuck, a sticking point? I guess. Yeah. Before going um, to poetic naturalism. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I ever got really stuck in nihilism. I definitely felt that sort of magnetic pull, thinking that nobody was watching. Um, that sense that my life didn't matter. Um, but yeah, probably because of my circumstances, I had two kids already at the time and I don't know, for me, the idea of not having somebody observing and keeping score on my life actually felt liberating. Mm -hmm. I get, and I think for my whole life up until then, it was comforting to think somebody has my back, somebody's protecting me. Um, But that was kind of a false comfort. I mean, how many Christians do we know that still get cancer and still suffer in terrible ways? God didn't immunize us from suffering by any stretch. You know, you could pray and hope, but uh, we can't understand the mysterious ways of God when it didn't work out the way we wanted. So Yeah. um, yeah, I didn't really get stuck in the nihilism. To me, it was liberating to think my life is my life. There aren't rules and I can make choices that feel right to me. I can do what I feel authentic about, regardless of some other person, some beings, you know, standard or judgment that felt very liberating. So I kind of like that. Um, I had a fun moment when I realized for the first time that I thought no one was listening to my thoughts anymore. It's like, I can swear. <laughs> <laughs> Swearing <laughs> yeah. was such a big taboo for me. Yeah. So that's been fun to play with. We're like, I can say, it. it's just words. You know, I'm not going to yeah. cuss a person out and be rude and unkind about it because I think that matters. Um, but yeah, to me, it was kind of liberating to let go of the idea of this omnipotent, all-seeing power hovering in the corner of my life. It kind of felt freeing. And uh, I didn't land in the the scary, nihilistic place. Yeah, and, Thankfully. That's so avoided good. that. I think I'm just a glass half full kind of person. So I jumped to the sunny side where I could find it.
0: That's so good. That's so good to hear though. Well, and I also wondered, um, and I'm trying to think if you talk about this in the book, maybe I'm just having a brain glitch. I remember a lot of the kind of the arguments that you went through, the assumptions that you went through countering in your mind. Um, but did you also feel, because this is something I hear a lot from people this real fear over the loss of relationship with a being, right? And mm-hmm. and was that was that um, a part of your journey as well, or was that less of a part because you were able to see sort of the vision of of the new life that awaited? Um, but yeah, was there any sort of loss of relationship in your mind concerning God?
1: Yeah, that aside from the new level of tension and strife in my marriage. That was the hardest part for me because I didn't leave because of a sense of disappointment or abandonment or hurt from God. It was not an emotional choice I made. It was honestly purely intellectual. I just kind of thought my way out. And so I had always felt loved by God. I had, I was lucky to have a pretty trauma-free experience of religion and God to me was somebody who knew me and loved me, and so that that was hard for sure. You know, I had had that regular journal practice. I used to pray all the time. I would talk to God, you know, in my head, and so that was hard. I I remember the very first night I laid down to go to bed and started praying on autopilot, and I just started weeping mm. <laughs> to think no one is listening. He's not there. I don't think there's something that can hear my thoughts right now. That was very lonely. Um, the first time that I saw a really beautiful sunset and in the past, I would have immediately jumped to praising God. Oh God, your creation is so glorious. So beautiful. I froze. It stopped me in my tracks. And again, instant tears thinking, I want to praise God, but I don't think God's there. And so yeah, that was hard, that loss of relationship. Um, but that particular example with the sunset, I also then remember thinking, okay, well, if God isn't there, the sunset is still beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> The, the yeah. things that I was appreciating continue to exist without having a being to thank for them. They're still there. I can just enjoy them for what they are without having to thank anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, So that kind of helped me out of that predicament. But yeah, no, the, the loss of relationship, I think along with that identity piece, that was definitely the hardest part.
0: Okay. And I do, I guess I do remember reading about the sunset and reading about how you journaled and you would go back. And I think there was that first mixed feelings, right? You're like, oh, I was talking to God, but God's not there. And then this idea of, oh, wow, look what I was doing here. And look what, right. yeah. so that I, do, I guess I do recall that and, and thinking, wow, she just, I don't know. It's real. I guess it is that looking at the bright side of like, look at someone who does that. <laughs> Live, learn. <laughs> so, <laughs> how
1: <to do>
0: <laughs> I will all. tell you if you're an enneagram person. I am a seven, and okay, so okay.
1: not like pain. <laughs> I'm gonna find the good side. Okay, <laughs> that does help.
0: I am a three, and I seem to lean on that wing four a lot in deconstruction. So you can imagine. <laughs> the yeah. So that's really mm-hmm. okay. So we've we've talked a lot about your life now, and and I wondered if there was any advice, maybe. For those in deconstruction, you know, maybe at different points, maybe someone who's just starting, Mm -hmm. maybe someone who like you has just walked away from faith. Mm -hmm. Let's address those two people. What Mm -hmm. is any advice or any thoughts you would give them?
1: So the person just starting to ask those big questions, I would just try to comfort them and say, don't be scared. Yeah. If God is real, God can handle our doubts. There yes, are Psalms yes. where they question the existence of God in the Bible. And that book made it into the Bible. You know, like if God is a real thing, they can handle the doubts. They can handle the questions. They can handle us walking away, I think. Yeah. Um, I was really comforted to learn about and read about near-death experiences. Mm. People who have a near-death experience who clinically die and are resuscitated There is a very universal pattern of, there's kind of like 12 different common experiences people have that nobody has maybe all 12, but somebody has these three, somebody else has those four. Um, And overwhelmingly, 90 plus percent of the time, regardless of where in the world you are, regardless of what religion you are, regardless if you're atheist, regardless of if you were trying to end your own life that started Mm -hmm. the near-death experience, The experience is overwhelmingly peaceful and positive and full of love. It is that seeing the light, that light is a sense of love and peace and wholeness. People often see a loved one that has already passed. There is this common experience people have across the spiritual board that is good. And so I think if there is anything out there, and I don't know if that's our brains doing some weird neurochemistry at the end, or if it's something that is happening in some other realm that science cannot yet explain, But it's good for everybody, even the atheist. There was a mobster who had an experience like that. And he came out of it and had to leave the mob because he realized the violence he was committing on people every day. He's like, I'm doing that to myself. We are all connected. We are all one. Mm -hmm. Um, But that that gave me comfort to think, okay, if I'm totally wrong and barking up the wrong tree, it doesn't seem to matter in the afterlife. We all have the same Mm
0: -hmm. beautiful,
1: loving experience. So hopefully that's true. Um, so I would just say as a source of comfort, don't be afraid of the questions and also don't be afraid to set it down and walk away. Yeah. It's not up to us. I think as Christians or just as humans, again, that black and white, we want an answer. We want to know we're right. And so I think we feel this obligation to land and have a, a solid explanation for things. And I don't know that that's necessary to being a human. You know, if it is, the actions are more important, just live your life and try to be a good person hang on to the values that you have from your faith which you know golden rule kind of thing treating others as we want to be treated and I think that's a great place to just linger and maybe you can set the questions aside for a while if you're like me I was a dog with a bone about it I thought I cannot dedicate my life to something if it doesn't exist so I need to know don't be afraid of the questions and try to just stay open and see where it takes you but I would just advise people if you're feeling overwhelmed, it's okay to set it down and come back to it later. You don't have to arrive and have an answer to the greatest mysteries of the universe that yeah. humans have never had an answer to. Not up to you individually to figure it out. Um, and then to the person like me who has decided to walk away, I would just want to hug them and say, I get it. And I know how scary it is, but it'll be okay. You're still here. You're still living a good life. You still have things to live for. Um and maybe now your motivation is different, but you can still live a beautiful, awe-filled, wonderful life outside of faith and outside of God. At least I have been. So it's possible.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you might not do this, but I would also add, and maybe read her book <laughs> because it will help you. It will help you. <laughs> someone who's done that. So yeah, yeah. as we're finishing up here, how have Christian concepts still inspired and informed you, um, especially if you think of them maybe now in terms of myth and how can Mm -hmm. we, especially people who are reevaluating Christianity or people who've walked away, how can we grapple and maybe even glean good things from those um, quote unquote myths while Mm -hmm. not entering that realm of belief we had before?
1: Mm -hmm. I think if you if you can stay humble again about your beliefs, if you are still in religion and, and take again, I like church history and just religious history. And I think it's so interesting to look far back in time at the development of religion. There's that uh, Sapiens book by Harari was good about that. And there's another one, Uh, Reza Aslan is a professor of religion, and he wrote a book called God that does that really big picture back into the Neanderthal days. Um, And he has another book called Zealot that's all about Jesus from a historical archaeological perspective. Seeing those big pictures to me, um, it makes religion become less. I think when you're in it and when I was a Christian, everything felt so important and so certain again, you know, that having the answers, having the black and white. And if you look a little bit outside of time and get a little bit curious about what other people think and believe, I think it just invites humility. It invites us to stay humble and realize, okay, I'm just one tiny group of people that's wrestling with these huge questions that humans have never had an answer to. There's been a lot of different struggles and wrestlings and answers over the time um and they're all i think interesting and we can learn from and there are some commonalities within religion especially as religion has grown and developed that i think if you see it as just this human struggle of trying to make sense we've got this big brain that we've been able to use to develop our society and develop all this amazing technology and those big brains are asking some really big questions and if you just look at it in terms of that way of this search that we've been going on as a species since we got here um, I think that can, I, I can see it that way as just a, a beautiful journey that humans have been on trying to, to figure this out and to make the most of our life and to, to make the most of this gift that we have of being here. And so it opens it up then to lessons you can get out of a lot of religions. I'm currently reading a few books by, um, A Sufi mystic and I've been reading the Tao Te Ching is Taoism their main book and there's some really beautiful stuff in there so I think for me being an atheist has actually opened the doors to more religious beliefs because now I can see them all as not having to dedicate my life and soul to but just things that I can learn from and I can kind of pick and choose which maybe seems a little bit arrogant I guess but um Truly, just you know, looking at the the human journey across the ages and across the globe, and seeing what feels true and right and good from a wide variety of religious beliefs, uh, Christianity included. So I think Christianity's stood the test of time for two thousand years. There's some stuff in there that obviously struck a chord uh, within humans, and some some ideas that we can hang on to as just a good way to be a human.
0: Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time and sharing your story with <laughs> yeah. us. Before we let you go, could you tell us where people can find you and where they can find your book? Yes. Yeah,
1: so the book is Giving Up God, Resurrecting a Spirituality of Love and Wonder. And it's available wherever books are sold. Um, I have a website that's my whole name, sarahenhayward.com. And the links to the book are on there, as well as podcast links. I do some other writing now for. Uh, we have a religious news service locally in the Pacific Northwest that I write essays for once in a while. Um, so there's a lot of information on my website. And then I'm mostly active on Instagram. I am S. Hayward Writes on there. So you can come see me there too.
0: And we will put all of those in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, thank you, Liz. This is great. If this episode was meaningful to you please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructing the myth so that episodes like today's keep coming